Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Time to Unwind podcast from WatchGecko. And um, we're going to talk today about tool watchers. Now, we'll be getting on to the definition of tool watchers later, but let's let's start off with a great story about tool watchers, which is from my my friend Steve. Hello, Steve, if you're listening, you're probably not. But I had the, you know, the, the great good fortune recently to get myself a Rolex sub. I think, as I said to Steve, the ultimate tool watch, to which he replied, for the ultimate tool. Um, anyway, we'll be going much more into tool watchers today. Um, and joining me are Tim and Richard. So we're going to start off in the time honored fashion. Say hello, Tim. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Richard. Oh, he's not playing the game anymore. Yeah, sorry, I'm not Ben. But there we go. Yeah, it's it's um, revolution has broken out. <laughs> Joining us as well is Richard Brown. Of course, everyone who's read the Watch Gecko online magazine will be very familiar with Richard and what he does. Richard's an accomplished writer and he's got, um, I'm not sure if we're allowed to talk about Richard's past. It's nothing sinister, don't worry. It's just that um, he did all sorts of secret things for very exciting people. Say hello, Richard. Hello, Richard. Fantastic. So um, as we mentioned, we're going to talk about tool watchers. Now, tool watchers are not just watchers for tools, are they? So I'm told. I yeah. hope not, <laughs> yeah. because what does oh. that make us? Um, well, it makes us quite a worrying bunch of individuals, <laughs> this is for sure. But let's start off with um, what a tool watch is. We'll have, you know, it's the sort of thing that you've probably read about and seen written down many times, tool watchers, the latest tool watchers and so forth. But um, let's let's just get it sort of straight as to what a tool watch is so let, let's go for a couple of definitions richard what do you understand by a tool watch i think they are historically something which was actually a viable piece of equipment that helped you do a job uh, more than more often than not a professional job such as a diver or uh, perhaps in the military some sort of sphere it was a job that it was a a watch that actually provided a, a sound mechanical function that you needed to do your job. That would be my hastily constructed definition. As opposed to Tim, for example, you know, the various Cartiers that you wear, which you like to hang around in wearing black ties, going to sort of like <laughs> gala dinners. That's, that's probably not a job, is it? That's not a watch for a job. Although you might find those soirees that you head to, you know, quite sort of hard employment. Well, I did make some notes actually that that a arguably a watch in general is a form of a tool um, because obviously it it hopefully tells the time. Um, but much like Richard, my definition was was similar. It's a purposeful piece of a functional kit. I think that emphasis on functional is quite important. Um, that previously or historically was crucial to the execution of certain jobs or professionals and stuff. So. I think that's kind of where the difference between a watch in general and a tool watch is is all based on that function. Absolutely. Um, I've got a very similar definition. I think maybe one simple way to put it is, do you think um, a tool watch is one where basically um, function is 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 has precedence over form, whereas maybe um, a dress watch is one where form perhaps has precedence over function. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think yeah, mm -hmm. I could that pretty much covers it. I think an aspect of a tool, of tool watch does have some form a part of it, but yeah, certainly function function is is number one. I think in this in this case. 
So, for example, let's say the that, that Moser, the one where you can't actually tell the time, that's probably not a tool watch, is it? I think we could safely argue that. Yes. I, th I, I think I think it's for me, um, there's a phrase I love because I remember reading it in a, an old GMT master uh, advert from the 1980s, which was somebody cited that the watch had supreme legibility. And it's one of those phrases that I um, unashamedly weave into some of the writing that I do at Watch Gecko. And I, I think for me, that is one of the guiding principles of a tool watch. Mm. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. So what sort of jobs, what sort of functions need tool watchers? Because, um, you know, dive watchers are obviously ones that spring to mind. Then we have pilot watchers, but um, you don't get, for example, many, I've no idea, butchers watchers. But I did see that, of course, I forget who it was now. There was some celebrity chef was endorsing a chef's watch recently. Um, quite quite a clever thing. I had lots of, I'll, I'll try and look it up which one that was. Lots of different timers, presumably, to sort of help you work out how long to make your beef rare for. <laughs> I haven't heard of that. That was, no, that was interesting. That was quite interesting, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was a joke. I don't know. Maybe it was sort of like Gordon Ramsay's sense of humour or something like that. But, um, but which sort of roles do you think traditionally then um, go hand in hand with tool watchers? Um, uh, like I said, I've mentioned divers, um, pilots. I mean, I would say they're very synonymous with the military um, because they mm. they require uh, what a lot of people would call field watches. But of course, by by virtue of its function, a field watch is a tool watch. Uh, I think um, people who are out. Uh, I mean, I, I don't. I know some people use the term adventurer, professional adventurers. I think. Uh, Braymont, for example, have some professional adventurers as ambassadors, and for them, certainly, uh, a tool watch is, is is an essential piece of kit. You see, Richard, I've always thought of you as a professional adventurer. Oh, you flattery. <laughs> That's two compliments in about ten minutes, there, Richard. I know this is this is a loving. This is. But you're, you're pleased you turn up today. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I try and make everyone feel good, you know. <laughs> Tim, any any other professions we've missed? We've spoken about the military. We've um, what what have what else have uh, what else have we got? Who, um, who I mean, they're they're kind of the main ones. They're probably the ones that are, are most popularised. Certainly nowadays, when we look back at tool watches that people wear, um, chronographs as well with kind of racing drivers. Uh, I, I was going to say racing mm. drivers because you know it is. I think. A decent watch is definitely a tool of your trade as a racing driver and not just a fashion accessory but you know in the past obviously you didn't have a sort of big pit wall behind you and complicated timing systems you had to sort of work out a lot of things by yourself as a racing driver in the old days these days of course that role has changed as of course the role of many tool watchers has but we'll be getting on to that a bit later anyway you mentioned tim sorry i'm interrupting i'm prattling on as your usual you mentioned racing drivers what what else do we think yeah I, I suppose it's any sort of professional role that that time comes into play really because you suppose not necessarily racing drivers themselves would wear them but that some of the, the teammates in the pits would wear them mm. as well um i think it's quite interesting to think about what professions or professionals in, in the past wouldn't have a need for a watch that because i was going to say well if you use any sort of tools that's, then then you kind of you are set up to need a tool watch but actually it's only the ones that have a strong connection to time and it's it's kind of vital to their role i know like doctor's watches for example are, have been popular in the past um with certain scales so you can time like heartbeats and stuff so it it goes pretty deep to be fair 
Yeah, I suppose you could, but you could stretch that, couldn't you, to any, you mentioned um, motorsport, but you could stretch that to any form of professional sport. Yeah. I mean, look at look at the sponsorship on the sales of the um, America's Cup, which was just, was yeah. it last month, the month before? Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, everybody's looking to see what watch Ben Ainsley's wearing, that there's, there's huge logos splattered across the sales. I mean, they're they're. I mean, and and manufacturers such as Rolex are making watches with specific uh, regatta start time functions on them. So I think if you go to any professional sport, there mm. is always an argument you could find a requirement for uh, a timepiece that can aid you in some way. Yeah, I was just thinking actually like yachting watches and there's even I think Timex have done some like well, I suppose they'd call them soccer but but football watches back back in the day and I don't know if they still maybe do some like reissues now but like like 45 minute time uh, scale on it so if you're a ref you know when half time's coming up in a football game so it it goes um surprisingly deep actually but I think it what about, sim- about synchronized swimming watches oh. I mean that's a sport where time is very important that's true. I I can't say I've saw I saw you only at Baselworld or any sort of similar shows, but that's really waiting to be discovered. <laughs> yeah, think... someone get got to get on that. Hmm. <laughs> Moving skeptical. on. You sound skeptical, Richard. As if you, it's as if you're not into synchronized swimming. I think I think in the Olympics it was like a marvelous sport, but I can't think I've seen them all wearing submariners or anything. No. <laughs> Well, absolutely. Um, dive watches, I guess, is where it all started. But um, from the sea to the air, as you mentioned, pilots' watches. And do you think a watch would be quite useful, Richard? Here's a random question, which I'm going to throw you away. If you were, say, for example, I don't know, an astronaut. Really? Now, there's an interesting thought. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah. What, what do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we have nicely slotted into the conversation probably arguably the world's most iconic tool watch the 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 omega speedmaster went through uh, a plethora of tests tests which are simply unbelievable and there's, there's some great links online maybe somewhere within the the podcast we could link to a page where they've got the list of tests that the the speedmaster was subjected to to be selected by nasa i think you've written a piece that covers it we should link <laughs> if, to it if, if i think back to articles it. you've done Good point well made. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what's really interesting, though? What's really interesting is that um, I'm, like you, Richard, I'm absolutely fascinated by the, the Moonwatch story. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously massively um, associated with the Speedmaster. But if we were to do one of those very quick word association games, actually, the first thing that would probably pop into my head would be the Speedmaster as, as a driving watch, a racing watch, and probably the next thing as a Moonwatch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure, I get that, yeah. So it's quite interesting how sort of like you have the same watch, but that has applications in quite a number of very different areas. Yeah, wasn't there a Speedmaster Schumacher selection? There was indeed. I believe it was yellow, wasn't it? Yeah, they've done quite a few. I think they've done, yeah, yellow and red are the two colours that come to mind, but they, I believe they're the ones from the 90s, and I think they're more in the speedy reduced, which is, I think, 38, 39 mil maybe. Um compared to 41, 42, this, uh, the standard Speedmaster. Um, so, yeah, they've done a lot of, of racing-inspired Speedmasters. Um, yeah, Speedmaster is, I mean, you could do a podcast just on the Speedmaster, to be fair, it's huge. Let's do that at one point. That would be a great problem. <laughs> Richard would be in heaven. Oh, you'd never shut me up. 
I think I think we should know. I think I think that's absolutely speedmasters. Of course, they're associated with astronauts. They're associated with with racing. Um, one thing it's probably not is is a dive watch. And I think sort of it's it's funny, isn't it? If we're talking about tool watch, um, I love dive watches. So I'm I'm the I'm the first person who's sort of not going to be uh, who, who who's who's going to be kind to them. But in some ways, the whole category of tool watches has almost been hijacked by dive watches, hasn't it? I think it has, yeah, over time it's kind of evolved as the popularity of diver watches has just grown. It's just gone crazy. I mean, it, it is the watch that everyone's wearing at the moment, um, especially even more so with the popularity of just steel sports watches in general. Um, but yeah, tool wa uh, diving watches, yeah, are just tool watches for a lot of people, definitely. It's really odd because um, there are far more diver watches in existence than divers, aren't there? I'm pretty sure. I would have thought so. Yep. <laughs> what do we sure. It is about the dive watch that's captured people's imagination because it's not quite as niche a sport as synchronized swimming, but almost, you know, um, I can count on the fingers of one hand the, the couple of people I know who've actually been diving. Not that many people do it. And yet pretty much everyone we know has got a dive watch or likes a dive watch. Mm. Uh, I think this stems from. Think where? Where do you think it stems from, Richard? What's uh... well, I think this stems from the fact that um, the, the the design of a dive watch lends itself to something which is uh, highly visible and it pre presents information to you in a way that, that that cannot really be mistaken. And I think this is why, uh, if you look back on early field watches, how they evolved as well, because I. Because I, I find the two are intrinsically linked. Uh, mm. I, th I think the reason dive watches are as popular as they are, because they are quite big, bulky things, is that they present the information so clearly, so concisely, that there's no interpretation for error. And I think if you're into a watch that is extremely elaborate, that is skeletonized, then you'll never get the dive or watch concept if you're into a watch where you simply want to see the time quickly, clearly and legibly then the dive watch does it better than anything because it was originally designed to be able to do that in the dark, in the depths of the ocean. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a fundamental honesty to them, isn't it? They are watches that are there for you to tell the time with in a quick, easy and clear fashion. They're not trying to be, I guess, a fashion statement, although we can argue that they may have become a fashion statement. But and I'm sure people... we will later on. I'm sure we will later on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it, they're very much sort of evolved into that and I think you know for me the appeal and um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of dive watches and I, I don't know many people who aren't in fact I don't know anyone who's not I mean feel free to speak up anyone here if they're not into dive watches but what I like about it is the honest solidity of it I guess mm. um, it's it's uh, a timepiece which is there to do a job and there's something about it which just seems pretty much any decent dive watch seems pretty much solidly indestructible on your wrist. And I think that almost in a way sort of like, uh, you know, give, gives the wearer a little bit of sort of like, you know, assurance and confidence and security, whatever you want to call it, because, you know, you've got this great taste of solid kit which looks like it's hewn from iron on your wrist and you feel a little bit invincible that you can survive anything and and, and i guess really that's what sort of taps into the whole vibe of um diver watches pilots watches indeed 
astronauts watchers and racing driver watchers is a, a little bit of the glamour of that role of the intrepid adventure the explorer nature rubs off on the person who's wearing it i completely agree I, I, you, you've hit the nail on the head uh, at the moment i'm uh wearing a titanium omega seamaster and it's you do it, you draw confidence from it and i think it's because you know the you, you will never put the watch through what that watch has been designed to take. Therefore, in your far more sedate life, you know you've got something that you can always rely on. It's never going to let you down. Mm. Yeah, I, I always compare it to stuff like when you go and buy a new coat and it, it says on the tag it can survive minus 20 and you live in the UK and it barely goes below minus five and you go, oh yeah, that'll do. That's fine for me. If, if it can, if it can do that, then it'll be fine for me. Or you, you buy a sleeping bag that can go to minus 10 and you're camping in the summer. You're like, oh yeah, that'll, that'll sort me out. Um, so it, there is definitely a link to that reassurance you get from something that's far more capable than you ever put it through. Um, and I think, I think for like nowadays wearing these watches that are linked back to when people use them as tools, it feels more like you're representing the way things used to be done by wearing them now. And yeah. I think it's almost like mm. a it's a respect aspect. Um, and I suppose that's where the artistic side of watches come in because, you know, we we all probably wouldn't really be wearing a watch if we wore them just to tell the time or we'd just be wearing Apple watches. So that that connection, um, I think, is is extremely strong. I couldn't agree more with you, Tim. And I think if you look at the the market, the sort of rapidly burgeoning market for vintage subs or vintage any dive watch, really, and that really underlines the point. You know, these watches often, you know, a vintage sub. I don't think you know you'd have to be a brave man, wouldn't you, to take it underwater? Um, it would probably probably ruin it. So it's probably sort of fairly useless as a as a dive watch if it's not been absolutely maintained as it should. Yeah. But it's more a homage to that lifestyle, isn't it? It is, yeah, and that's why we see brands like Tudor doing so well at the moment, and that's why we see them constantly releasing new 58 models and expanding those colours. It's because they know that it's popular. They know that people, that's what people want. For a lot of people, a luxury watch is a watch on a bracelet with a rotating bezel. That That's just it. And if, if you're wearing a gold watch with a leather strap, that's, um, that's maybe more of a jewellery piece or a woman's watch. So for a lot of I suppose I say men, but it's obviously women as well. I think for a lot of men, it's that that is the the look you go for. That's the successful. I've made it watch, and mm. I do question whether a lot of people who end up buying those watches actually do know the history behind it. It's, it's the sort of thing that if you're a salesman and there's someone comes in and wants to buy their first luxury watch, that's kind of a part of your little spiel. You'd you'd tell to them, oh, this used to be used by divers, and that would that would kind of push people over the edge. Um, but it's kind of more than that. Absolutely. Um, so Richard was telling us just now what's on his wrist. What is on your wrist, Tim? Uh, I was going to say it's boring. Have you, but it's, have you entered into the spirit of the Tool Watch podcast by wearing one? I have actually. Yeah, I've I've gone back to my Samariner, which. Oh, that's, that's boring. Well, yeah, I suppose I, I feel like I, the amount of times I said I'm wearing it on here um, seems quite a lot, but I haven't worn it for a while now. Actually, um, it's been quite a few months, I think, as we've had loan watches coming in and stuff. I really have that long of a time with my own watches nowadays um but it's been nice to wear it again i kind of as you're kind of doing more as, as we're released from from lockdown in the uk it's helped to uh remind myself as to why i like it and why i find it so useful because uh, the past few months i haven't really needed to 
know the date all of the time because the only thing you ever do is sit in front of your PC working sort of thing. So, yeah, back back to the sub. What about you, Anthony? I'm sure you're similar. Um, would Would Richard like to guess which watch I'm wearing? <laughs> Are you wearing a watch by any chance that's solar powered? I am indeed. Oh, he's, he's on fire today, isn't he? <laughs> is this a new purchase that I don't know of? Um, you you may. I think we talked about it. I think we talked about it. Um, it is, of course. Well, Richard, you do the intro because we're going to talk about. <laughs> and Anthony is wearing a legendary Citizen Promaster Tough open brackets oh. Ray Mears close brackets. You did tell me about this. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, I remember, um, Richard, I remember you doing the, the piece on that, and that's a cool watch. It is super cool, and I've got mine right in front of me here as well, because I knew it was going to come up in conversation. <laughs> so we'll we'll talk about that later, but yeah. uh, um, um, no, j- just to say that, you know, like, like you, Tim, um, I've not worn this watch for a little while. I wore it especially because I knew we were going to be talking about <laughs> and doing this podcast today. And what am I struck by? I'm just struck by the immediate legibility and clarity of the dial and the fact that you take it out of its drawer, um, you walk across the park as I did this morning, and that's that's literally all you need to do. It's um, it's a watch that pretty much looks after itself. And I'm wearing it and I'm thinking, well, uh, this is all the watch you really ever, ever did. <laughs> um, it's... It's obviously, you know, I'm not Ray Mears, um, but even in my own quite unadventurous lifestyle, I can see how this is just such a reassuring presence. And I don't think, and this is this is a pretty big claim, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't remember seeing a watch which you can read so instantly and clearly as this one. Mm. I would wholeheartedly agree. And I was very lucky to be involved in the purchase of your watch. Yeah, um, it was. Or should I say, I bullied you into buying I was going to say, one. that's why it's on his wrist. Now it will make sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's um, it's great and I absolutely love it. Um, it's. Um, it, it, yeah, I agree with you. I, 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 I Honestly, you're the only other person I know that has one, which amazes me uh, because, I mean, I know they're quite hard to find now, especially the original models. And Citizen have made other variants and evolutions of it, such as ones that were connected to the Royal Marine Commandos and things. But if you're going to have one, you've got to have the original style. Um, they were so clever uh, for their time. Uh, they, they, they were designed, I, and I stand to be corrected on this, if anybody knows differently, uh, I believe they were designed for the, the chaps that were living in places like McMurdo Base, who spent six months in darkness because the charge on the watch is approximately six months. That's how long it lasts, if it sees no light. But uh, it's in a a monocoque as well, monocoque titanium case. So as I look at it, I still, I don't know if you've worked worked it out, Anthony, because I can't, I still can't really work out how citizen access it if they need to, the movement. Um, That's a very good point. I've not asked myself that question, but I I now will, Um, and I have no idea. Maybe with a tin opener. Who knows? I just threw the crystal. Maybe it's 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 according to the back of mine, and yours will say the same. It is uh, anti-magnetic to sixteen thousand ghosts, okay, which nice. is a lot if you consider <laughs> the mil ghosts is one thousand. 
Um, and for me, though, the best feature in it, not so much the fact it's solar powered, it's got two separate uh, levels of superluminova in it, it's the anti-shock mechanism in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the anti-shock mechanism, it, if, if the watch gets a severe impact, it stops the hands for just for a microsecond so that they don't get knocked out of place. Then when the watch has decided the impact is over, it starts the watch again. And all this takes place so quickly that you actually don't perceive any loss of time in it. Yeah, I mean, that's that comes back to the, the point we're making earlier of, of watches that are or, or items that are almost over-engineered, but uh, reassuring to wear. So um, Mario Andretti, of course, a very famous racing driver who's owns a number of watches and has had a number of watches named after him, recounts a, a story of when he had a, an accident in an Indy car and his, um, his Daytona actually stopped with the, um, with, the, with the sort of shock of the impact and um, he had to send it away to get it fixed. So had he been wearing a Citizen, that probably wouldn't have happened, would it? There you go. No, I don't, well, I mean, the, um, the uh, encyclopedia has, uh, the, the, that's monitoring us has just said it's access through the crystal. Oh, well, oh there, there we go. go. Boom. So there we go. Yeah, but it, it, it is an amazing bit of kit. But the thing as well is it, it, you could argue it's a field watch. You could argue it's a part military watch. You could, you could argue it is the first one of the only great explorer watches. And there's something I, I was going to touch on later as well, hasn't it? It's like, you know, yeah. sorts of, yeah. yeah, it's got the looks of the, the old Flieger watches. It's, exactly. it's, it's, mm. they, they've taken inspiration from so many things and they've somehow pulled it off into what, what I would I, I would defend sitting in a group of watch geeks. I would defend to the end of the day that this is one of the greatest watches ever created. Big words and Damn. Uh, being a being a very very proud owner. It's um yeah it's a watch I've not worn for well um not not the six months that the explorers spend in the Murdo Sound in darkness but it's it's certainly been for about a month or so in darkness in my in my drawer mm-hmm. and um, yeah just what a brilliant user friendly watch and um, I didn't know the thing about the um, the anti-shock mechanism i hope never to test that out but it's good to know it's there yes let's hope you never find that one out but trust me even if you do suffer such an enormous impact your citizen will be just fine that's that's absolutely that's absolutely great to know there we go so um that's one of our favorite um tool watchers um t- tim if i asked you what your favorite tool watch would be would would, would you probably go for a um the sub or would you go for something else what would you say wow um i don't know that's that's quite a deep a big question really um i don't know really so like i think because as we mentioned before tool watches span so far that it's tricky to define one as my favorite um i mean modern tool watches i don't I think it's something we'll come on to there's a few suggestions yeah. there that i've got but I think if you had to choose one, it, it, it one is it is boring, but it would be the Submariner, I think. The Submariner. Well, that was a tough question. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to ask you an easy question now, um, which is obviously going to be part of a seamless link. Now, um, <laughs> if if our company owner John were here, what do you think he would nominate as um, as, as the greatest tool watch ever made? Uh, probably the Explorer. Actually, thinking yes. about it, yeah, it'd be definitely be the Explorer. Uh, it would be the Explorer. I think you know that's a great random guess. And uh, 
That too, um, Richard, maybe you can tell us about this. That's got a great story behind it as well, um, notably um, the Everest story. Yeah, no, it has. It, it, it explore, well, it, there's this controversy over it, um, which is something we were looking at before we started recording today. Mm. Uh, because obviously the Everest um, actually had a Tudor and it wasn't a Rolex when he went up Everest. <laughs> well, it's more the Smith's argument. Oh, OK. <laughs> Because uh, I mean, both both brands claim to be the first up Everest. Um, I mean, we we know both brands were there. Uh, we know both watches were worn, uh, the Smiths and the Rolex. Uh, Smith supplied a lot of other equipment to the expedition, uh, various pieces of technical equipment they needed, um, and both watches claimed to have reached the summit with both the climbers. Uh, I mean, it was. I, I, you could only describe this as a marketing dream, couldn't you? But but to me, this yeah. is uh, interesting because it reflects on how the watches were advertised in those days. And I think it's interesting, perhaps if we step back, as, as you've seamlessly just done there, you know, 40, 50 years to how the two watches came about. Um, I mean, the Smith's watches were very much military style watches when they came out and that's why they would have that's why they would have carried them because they were the only watches that would have been deemed even remotely suitable mm. for the type of environment they were in and the rolex explorer obviously is that style of watch as well um yeah my understanding of that setup was it it sounds to me like it was like rolex saw it as more of a marketing opportunity to get their watches on the wrists of the of the summit team whereas smiths were as you said, kind of just more focused on providing the gear. And I mean, there were, aren't many companies that are as forward thinking as, as Rolex have been over the years in terms of this sort of marketing technique. It's something that people talk about now as revolutionary on Instagram, but Rolex have been doing it since the 30s and 40s um, of, of kind of associated marketing to talented people. Um, so I, I think that's that's more of how it was how it happened. Smiths mm. were just let's just get the guys what they need and included, and it will be watches. Whereas I believe Rolex um, had specific models slightly customized for uh, some of the summit team and some of the team involved. Um, but but both are, are, set, are definitely both brands definitely deserve to be mentioned. Yeah, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I remember looking many years ago. Um, at Smith's watches online, mm. and but these were new watches, and somebody had made a watch called the Smith's Everest, which looked alarmingly like oh. a Rolex Explorer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Is yeah, I believe um, it's from Time Factors in the UK, and I. I think the story behind it is the guy um, noticed that the name was available to use and trademarked it and, and now owns the Smith name, Smith's name um, and releases watches similar to what they did in the past, as well as some slightly new ones. Um, so, yeah, included in it is an Explorer style watch um, with a 369. I believe Rolex's version of the quote unquote Explorer that went up Everest um, was more like a time-only Oyster Perpetual, so no 369, kind of just a white cream sort of um, mm. dial, and yeah, didn't have the 369. But yeah, that uh, Smiths are exists in some way. <laughs> was it um, actually a Rolex Explorer that went up Everest, or was it an Oyster? I think it's regarded as a early, early Explorer, 
uh, I, I, I double check, but I, th I think it was just just more like an Oyster Perpetual that maybe had the term Explorer on the dial. Um, maybe don't quote me on that because I, I need to double check that, but I believe that's what it was. Because it's interesting, if you look, like there's an analogy is that the Speedmaster Professional didn't become professional until it went to the moon. Right. For, yeah. So when Wally Shura wore a Speedmaster for Sigma 7, um, when it was his own watch, that was actually just a Speedmaster. Yeah, the non-professional non version. Yeah. 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 So looking at the the uh, Everest Rolex, it is just a white dialed, technically an Oyster Perpetual um, and the only thing it says on the dial apart from that is officially a certified chronometer. So there's no mention of Explorer, but I believe it's a model that is uh, almost regarded as the watch that then birthed the Explorer. Mm -hmm. I think I'm just looking at the, um, the the Smith's watch now. It looks, looks great, doesn't it? It does look good, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Smith's, they're an interesting company, Smith's. Yeah, they've done a lot of, a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. I now... don't get a lot of appreciation, really. They don't. I hope it was them who got there first, because it'd be quite fun to see Rolex knocked off its perch, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that will, even if they were, like no one will ever really know or kind of fully appreciate if they were, because it's, you know, Rolex were clearly on it with the marketing at the time. I think Smith did release uh, marketing images and all this sort of stuff around the time it happened. But, you know, Rolex went on to be Rolex, so they yes, kind of got the limelight. That, that... It was a really good feature, Tim, you copied out to me this morning, um, mm. which actually had the Smiths poster in it, which is really cool. Yeah, those those old posters are very oh, nice. fabulous. Aren't I love they? those. Yeah. The old Submariner posters are the same. They're just wonderful to look at because the way they're written, you can see then that a watch that was waterproof really mm. was considered a specialist tool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's something that's sort of like almost pretty much almost taken for granted now, isn't it? Because sort of like it seems that sort of every other watch gives you at least 30 metres of water resistance. Um, but of course, back then, that really was quite a special feature, wasn't it? it, it yeah. So, yeah. 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 It's um, yeah. Like I said, you just kind of take it for granted, really. Um, but yeah, we've moved, moved on quite a lot. Well, everything's 100 metre now, but back then it was actually a really big deal. I mean, even if you look at the old Rolex advertising, when they're talking about the comparisons to the crown being compared to a submarine hatch, yeah. uh, which they use that phraseology. I think they've, I think even my Rolex has got it in its little handbook. They still refer to it as a submarine hatch mm. type process. And yet screw down crowns now are, would I be correct in saying a little more common now? Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Absolutely. Now, Richard, you're a great authority and you know a lot about um, the the moon watches as well. Um, but the Speedmaster is not the only moon watch you own, I believe. There is there is another one, isn't there? Are yeah, there is. There's a wonderful history about watches that have gone to space, which are, it goes far beyond the Speedmaster. Uh, in fact, if anybody was watching the... Um, Dragon capsule launch just a few days ago. I was glued to the television to see what watches are wearing, and of course they were wearing <laughs> X33s. So that's another watch that is synonymous with space. Uh, but long before the uh, the Apollo missions, NASA was looking to see what watch it would give to people. And two of the great missions, which was Sigma Seven with Wally Shearer, 
and uh, the flight by Scott Carpenter, uh, the Mercury Atlas 7. Uh, they were both wearing their own watches. Now, Scott Carpenter wore uh, a Breitling Cosmonaut, which I think is, well, I must be honest and say it, if it wasn't so expensive, it would be on my wrist now. And th- this is the watch that's essentially a Navi timer, but with a 24-hour dial, right? That is correct, yes. Uh, okay. And it take, and it, and obviously when you, you've got to retrain your brain, I guess, to use that watch. Because if, I mean, if you're looking at it and the hands are in a particular p- position where your brain will automatically tell you the time is X, the time mm. is actually Y because of the way the <laughs> dial is set out. And yeah, so they, they, they were wearing their own watches. So Wally Schur's watch, I think Omega have re-released as the first Omega in space now, rather than the first watch on the moon. Yep. Yep. Um, the Breitling Cosmonaut is like gold dust. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think I've even seen one in a shop to buy. Uh, although it's interesting that I, if my facts are correct, I don't think his Breitling actually survived Mercury Atlas. And then there's the elusive Bulova from Apollo 15. And I think this is actually one of the most interesting stories. And I think the watch you're referring to, Anthony, is the the, the Apollo 15 Bulova that I have. And uh, actually, my two closest friends both also own them. We, 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 get, we get together virtually and look at them, um, which is a little <laughs> sad. Uh, but um, yeah, what happened was Bulova was... Uh, associated enormously with the Apollo project. They were making all the chronometers that were actually inside the Apollo capsules. And they were using their um, uh, triple tuning fork Accutron mechanism in there, because obviously the chronometer inside the capsule had to be uh, incredibly accurate. But Bulova really, really wanted to get onto the moon. So on Apollo 15, uh, uh, the captain or the commander of Apollo 15 was a chap called Commander Dave Scott. And he was wearing his Speedmaster, regulation Speedmaster. And he also had as his backup chronometer a unique, a, a well, I think it was five made, Bulova chronometer, which looks very like the Speedmaster. Yeah. But uh, had some subtle changes to it, which some would argue made it a slightly better watch. In that if you look at the two together, uh, the Bulova has paddles for the chrono pushers rather than small buttons. So it was a lot easier for them to 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 initiate with very bulky space gloves on, spacesuit gloves on. So what happened was it was there was three EVAs, extravehicular activities on the moon for Apollo 15. And on the second EVA, uh, Dave Scott's Speedmaster popped its glass off because of the extreme temperature that were being faced on the moon. It was, I think it's one of the only times I've read about where a Speedmaster actually failed on the moon. And you bear in mind, temperatures are up to 200 degrees C, you know, it can happen. Mm. And what he did was he put his Bulova onto the uh, long Velcro strap that the Speedmaster was on and he wore it for EVA3. And it was the only watch then that was privately owned that had been on the moon. And it was sold a couple of years ago for $1.6 million. Dave Scott put up for sale privately. And at that point then, whether or not some legal uh, clause had been passed, um, Bulova were then allowed to release a copy of it, which I ran out and bought the day it was available. I can just imagine you hurrying to the Bulova shop. I was probably walking slowly, pretending I was in zero gravity. (laughs) (laughs) Bouncing, bouncing along. I want to know where that watch is. Uh, Because if that ever came up for auction again... That would just that would be so much more than that. It's got to be. 
because the, the 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 auction world has evolved so much since then i mean you could even if you without knowing too much about it you could just pinpoint it to paul newman's paul newman mm. as being the turning point of, of watch prices going crazy especially ones with insane stories behind them like that watch would must be worth so much now if it came to auction it'd be crazy i think it would be utterly priceless because what wasn't made abundantly clear in the text for the auction, which they did follow, was that because it was still on the original Velcro strap, the NASA issue Velcro strap, that mm -hmm. strap was saturated with moon dust. Ah. So there's an argument that the moon dust itself on the strap was worth the million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what, is, what is amazing, though, to look at, because we're talking about, you know, if we're, if we're looking at tool watches and I think at some point later we'll get on to the fact that they should be used for purpose rather than kept in a drawer. Uh, that watch was really only on the moon for four hours and 50 minutes, give or take. And if you can find pictures of it online, you'd be amazed at the state the watch is in. Mm. It is yeah. really battered, really scratched from the abrasive materials on the moon. Yep. Well, I think that would be, I mean, I'm surprised that 1.6 million was, was all it fetched. Which year was that? Um, Richard, when it first went up, roughly? Uh, processing. I have a feeling it was 2011, 2012, maybe. Yeah, so I guess, I guess things have gone up there. But, you know, that is quite remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it, it. yeah, I mean, because all the other watches uh, were US government property, all yeah. the Speedmasters. Now, they are all on display in the Smithsonian and various other space museums, uh, but they could not be sold and one of the, they're all rather horrible because nasa would use the the side of it or the speedmasters have got have been dremel tooled on the side of them what the mission they were on <laughs> because obviously they they just treated them as a straight piece of government slash military kit they didn't yeah. bother to try and keep them nice but it is genuinely really worth researching the test that it went through the vibration the heat the cold mm -hmm. It's and also it's very interesting, although I can't remember them off the top of my head, what other watches it was up against. Other watches you would have thought would have easily passed the tests. Well, the most notable one is the Daytona. Ah, yes, of course. I think it was also, I think Zenith rings a bell. Um, I just looked at the date of the auction, it was 2016. So I was, I was okay. a few, few years early. Um, yeah, yeah I'm just trying to think of what else. Do Omega own any of them themselves? Because, of course, um, I imagine they'd love to have one, wouldn't they? I don't um, know, actually. I don't think so. I, 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 they may have a test model, perhaps, but they certainly don't have one of the NASA ones because, as I said, I think I'm pretty sure they're all government property and they were never sold or loaned to anyone. Oh, I'll tell you one that's gone missing, though, which is a good story. Um, is it in your cupboard, Richard? <laughs> don't tell anyone. Have you got that webcam on again? <laughs> the... Uh, Apollo 11, obviously, arguably the most famous moon landing. Uh, Neil Armstrong uh, didn't wear his Omega when he left the lunar module. He put it onto the uh, the control panel because he was so frightened that controls were going to fail on him or the chronometers would fail. That he knew at least with this, he had accurate timing for rocket burns. <laughs> so he left it behind. So Buzz Aldrin wore the first because he was second on the moon, Buzz Aldrin wore the first Omega that went onto the moon. And from Splashdown to the Kennedy Space Center to the analysis of the equipment they took with them, Buzz Aldrin's Omega, quote, went missing, unquote. <laughs> As they do. As they do. 
Well, I can I can imagine. I hope it's making someone very happy. Well, it's not me. I can tell you that. I want to clear that one up in case Derbyshire Constabulary are listening. What, what about um, Apollo 13? Everyone knows the story of the improvised burns and so forth. Um, was, uh, was a Speedmaster anything to do with that? It was everything to do with it, yes. That was what they had to time because they were running on such low power. Uh, they timed, I believe, it was a 14-second burn uh, using Jack Swigert's um, uh, Omega Speedmaster. And th there's a very, very good documentary, which I could recommend to anybody who's interested in any of this, called In the Shadow of the Moon, which was made by Ron Howard uh, right after he made Apollo 13. And there's some great interviews with the real astronauts. And there's a section where Jim Lovell, the commander of Apollo 13, does talk extensively about the use of the Omega. Yeah, along with Buzz Aldrin's watch, maybe that is the most famous Speedmaster in NASA history. Well, it is. And I think what they've done is, I mean, I'm, I won't surprise you to learn, I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to Speedmasters. Um, I, I really, I mean, the coaxial ones, for example, are really just fashion watches, in my opinion, the coaxial <laughs> um, moon watches. Uh, to me, there is only the professional moonwatch. That is the one you want to buy if you are into Apollo history. However, I would bend a little and say they have done some beautiful special editions over the years. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Apollo 15 one was superb with little flashes of red and white around the edge and the lunar rover on the back. There was the Apollo Soyuz link up where the, the 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 face was made of a sliver of meteorite they've, they've done some very very sympathetic and i would say very well judged special editions tim are you a fan of speedies are you a speedy fan watch fan i do yeah i do like the speedmaster yeah um for me the first amiga in space is probably the one i'd get and i think i've got kind of always said that i believe it's mm. it's more like 38 mil i think it's around there um maybe 39 and and the the, the case is a little bit more angled than the your standard moon watch um and they have pointed hands and stuff um but that, for me that that would always be the one i would get i think it wears really nicely um but it's yeah it's hard to deny how important the speedmaster is to kind of our corner of the watch world um and amiga know that they've done they've released so many limited editions as we just said they've done um they did like some of the early Snoopy ones had like, what could you do in 14 seconds on the dial and stuff? Um, they've done Speedy Tuesday examples, like released oh, yeah. like, because of the culture around the, the Speedmaster. Um, and they've done gold ones recently. They've done, I think they've even done like platinum ones. They've done loads of crazy stuff with them. Um, it, it's a bit of a running joke for watch people as oh, great, another limited edition Speedmaster. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of them are, are, are pretty nice. And to be honest, the main thing is that they all sell out. Yeah, so, yep. you know, it's hard to argue with it, really. Deservedly so. Um, here's a random question uh, for Richard, because if anyone knows the answer to this question, um, <laughs> it's Richard, but it's just something that's popped into my head when we're talking about um, Scott Carpenter's Breitling Navitana Cosmonaut. Um, we've spoken a lot about the NASA watches, but what did the Soviets use in their, in their space program? Do you, do you happen to know? Does anyone know? Yes. Yuri Gagarin had a watch called a Sturmansky, ah. uh, which um, is now available as a copy somewhere. Mm. Uh, it, it is, it's a very simple steel watch, not, not hugely different to the um, Rolex Oyster that Tim was describing earlier. 
that went up Everest. Again, it's back to a day before specialist equipment existed. Yeah. And you can buy the Sturmansky now uh, uh, as a clone, but certainly for the last, as long as I've been into the space program, um, the Russian Space Agency has used the Fortis uh, mm. cosmonaut as yeah. its standard issue watch. And it is another one of the much underrated space watches. There, there are some amazing photographs of from the International Space Station of... Uh, Fortis watches floating in zero G next to the window of the ISS. Uh, this, and they've they've got, in fairness to them, they have got every bit as technically an impressive space history as the watches that the NASA astronauts have been wearing as well. Absolutely. No, that was a big gap in my knowledge. So thank you for filling it. I didn't know that at all. Did you, Tim? Uh, I. Uh, yeah, I, 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 my my Russian watch knowledge isn't amazing. I know that's which is a weird thing to say. Um, there's a lot of people out there who do uh, a big Russian watch enthusiasts. Um, but no, I, I didn't know. I mean, my knowledge on Moonwatch in general isn't that strong. So it's always interesting talking to Richard about it because I know he's extremely passionate about it, and I kind of always learn something. So I yeah. just need to find that elusive perfect Apollo strap from my Speedmaster. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, just looking right now at the Fortis Yuri Gagarin, Yuri Gagarin Special Edition. Oh, uh, um, I haven't seen that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's out of stock. It's a limited edition model of only 300. Um, just trying to see when that was released. But it's his, oh, it was the 50th anniversary. So when did Yuri Gagarin enter space? 50 years ago. 50 years, well, minimum, minimum 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> I should know that. But this watch was released a while ago. Um, but yes, it's called a Fortis GMT Spacematic. Yuri Gagarin, 50th anniversary limited edition. Remarkable. Nice. Yeah, I, th I think Fortis, they're, they're an interesting brand, actually. We haven't done too much coverage of them before, but I think they're definitely a brand that we'd be interested in learning Very a little bit more about. So. Mm, definitely. That, I, I think that's quite interesting. Well, I can feel... Um, a special a, a special sort of like um uh soviet watch uh, podcast coming up you <laughs> and earth we can sort of like uh, invite to go on it <laughs> I, I don't know any there there'll be russian pros out cosmonauts. there jump on watch you see you can mention russian watch and you'll be filled with people messaging you <laughs> They probably will. I'm, I'm even wondering if Russian watches, um, obviously Russians use Cyrillic script, but are the numbers the same? You know, would, uh, do you have do you have watches with Cyrillic numbers on it, even if such a thing would it, were even to exist? If it was going to exist, exist anywhere, it'd be in Russia, wouldn't it? I think it'd be in Russia. I think yeah. this is probably the sort of thing that Ben knows a little bit about. I've no idea why, but I've just got this <laughs> that Ben would sort of like come up with some obscure Russian watch knowledge. He probably does actually. Yeah, he's a weird one, Ben, isn't he? He's he's, he's quite quite unique. It's fun because he's not here to defend himself. I quite let's, like this. Yeah, let's let's carry on now. <laughs> we've spoken a lot about space. We've spoken a little bit about divers. Um, shall we talk a little bit because this is a very complicated subject, and given that um, I'm numerically incapable, I find this very very hard to get my head round. Watchers and navigation, so like sailing watchers, how you can find a way with watchers, how you can calculate things. Um, Richard, you probably know about this. I'm, I'm talking in particular about things like the Longines second setting watch and the hour angle watch. 
both in the in the third sorry the second setting watch was 1929 and the Longines uh, hour angle watch was 31. How do they work? Um, obviously, you can use a watch for navigation. You can use a watch for all sorts of things apart from telling the time, which is what a tall watch is there for. But navigation is a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, um, my knowledge of the early ones is extremely limited. Um, I, I, I'm sorry to admit, I, I don't particularly know how those watches worked. I mean, I struggle to work out. I mean, it's the sort of thing where sort of like, one is explained yeah, just about working out how tachymeter works, yeah. but, but the rest of it is all Cyrillic. To me. I think I think they were connected to do with the I think they took their inspiration from a sextant. Yeah, so I think they had their. You could work out the angle of the sun from the watch. Yeah, uh, which allows you then to calculate. Longitude or latitude, I'm not sure which. Um, that's something definitely we either need to write a feature on and get our facts right and do some homework. <laughs> Absolutely. I was um, reading a great story of uh, an Italian runner who got lost in a desert marathon. I've forgotten his name now, uh, but it's quite a well-known story. And um, one of the things that he tried to do was navigate his way out of the desert using his watch uh, mm -hmm. to some degree of success. Well, that you can definitely do. In fact, we've actually published a little feature on that: how to use your watch as a compass. We have. This is this is just a um, place to Richard to promote his articles, really, isn't it? That's about three or four that you've written that are relevant. Absolutely, I'm getting a little embarrassed now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yes, yeah, so um, you know we, we've spoken a lot about, as I said, about the sort of dive watches and the astronaut watches. Um, what are the significant, you know, sailing watches and say pilot watches we should cover as well because um you know watches are an integral part of uh the pilot's uh craft and um you know there's, there's a huge scene there it's, it's really really hard to know where to begin isn't it yeah i mean pilot's watches are they're mainly obviously linked to uh the second world war mainly but obviously they, they were used kind of slightly before then um players like iwc have kind of always dominated it um Laco, Stoa, like all of these brands have kind of been releasing Flieger watches. Well, they still release them now, actually, to be fair, they do kind of modern versions of them. Um, but it's interesting how they are they are tool watches, but what is important is kind of slightly different to uh, a chronograph, for example, or a diver. Um, like there's more of an emphasis on the minutes, like the passing minutes, and, and a lot of the times on the Flieger dials that's kind of reversed. So in the center of the dial, um, You've got the hours and, and then on around the edge you've got 5 10 15 20 to emphasize the minutes so it's it's yeah i mean pilot's watches are big i don't think they're definitely not as big as uh like uh, diving watches um but brands like iwc and even long jeans um yeah they definitely kind of continue the legacy of of pilot's watches yeah, absolutely. And I think we have to d distinguish, don't we, between pilots and watches, which, you know, started off life um, in, uh, for military use and pilots watches, which are still used now by by commercial pilots. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, more like GMTs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, some um, happened to um, uh, know, know a British Airways pilot and he, he actually uses his GMT master. So, um, it's it's a watch that um, he's had for a number of years, um, and he just uses it to keep track of the time at home. Which, when you're a pilot, I guess is quite useful to know. 
probably hasn't been flying that much in the past year anyway, so it's kind of a bit... Well, a bit absolutely, yes, yes. No, actually, he was one of the lucky ones who did keep on flying. Um, oh, so, good. So, yes, but um, I think he did... Um, he, he, he Probably his GMT master was less useful because I seem to recall that he was put onto a number of domestic routes, mostly. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, so yeah, so, so less useful in that context, but, you know, I'm sure he's now taking to the air and reaching for far-flung destinations uh, once again. But it touches back to the Navitimer that we mentioned earlier with Scott Carpenter, because obviously yeah. that was the, the, the non-24-hour model is, is an aviation watch. Yeah. And if you are a pilot in a perhaps a less sophisticated aircraft, um, as best I understand it, you, you have got enough information in the circular slide rule that you could calculate fuel usage to get you back to the ground if your instruments did fail. Um, Absolutely. Perhaps that is an argument for it being one of the ultimate tool watches. Um, because you think if you, I mean, Tim, obviously you, you would be too young to use, have used a slide rule at school. Yeah, I think um, I was, yeah. Yeah, I think you were. Sorry. I, I mean, I would even go as far as to say I was too, but our math <laughs> teacher liked to show us them because he thought they were cool. <laughs> and I liked it because obviously it is a great scene in Apollo 13 where they're using slide rules to do very, very critical calculations. And it was interesting to use one. So you think the what mind took that slide rule and turned it into a circle to put it around a watch? It's very, very clever. Yeah. yeah yeah this is this is proper niche within a niche stuff now isn't it mm. <laughs> absolutely i mean i wonder how many people are still using these things because um you know i guess bridging the gap between let's say the origins of tool watches and tool watches as they are now um you know we've seen that they were originated to serve a very specific purpose um but i don't think i mean i've never actually heard of Pilot, apart from potentially in an emergency situation, um, using his watch to navigate, because in theory you're meant to have all sorts of more sophisticated instruments to, to get you home. Um, so, so, so I guess sort of like uh, that really is sort of like part of the transition, isn't it, of of, of the tool watch being a, um, a, a fashion statement, almost. Yeah. Um, diver will always need a dive watch. But I don't think a pilot will necessarily need a pilot's watch anymore. Um, and I would also go as far as to argue that, uh, and this may be very disingenuous, and we'll get we'll get a plethora of complaints. <laughs> but I'm willing to bet most people who own a Breitling Navi timer probably can't use the slide rule. Yeah. 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 Well, I think I think there was a statistic, wasn't there? And I've forgotten what it was about the number of Range Rover owners who ever took their cars off road. <laughs> um, um, I think it's I think it's a very similar story, really. Isn't Perfect it? analogy. I've thought that with a lot of the new defenders I've seen on the road at the moment, being like, "Oh, that looks cool," and it's never going to see a single bit of mud. No, no, I don't know if it's true or not. There was this story going around in the sort of like um, in the 90s, wasn't there, about how sort of like you could get spray on mud for your Range Rover and Defender. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, if, 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 if that's not true, someone should invent that because I think it's, um, it, it's an excellent little, uh, little, little gadget. Spray on scratches for your watch. Well, absolutely. That, that, and, 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 and I think sort of like that's the thing with tool watches. Glad you mentioned scratches, Tim, because these are not watches to be sort of like cosseted and mollycoddled and brought out for for for, for grand soirees and, and stuff like that. These are watches that, that wear their scars with pride, aren't they? 
Yeah, they are. I I think it's it's quite interesting, really, because the a lot of people are kind of against scratching their watches uh, and kind of baby them. And I think we've all kind of been through that phase. But I I think as soon as you kind of get that first scratch and you kind of learn to learn to love the fact that you can scratch them and you can kind of make them your own, that's when watches look good. It it, it I saw actually um, watch collecting. Um, a, a recently launched or listed a 5711 Patek Nautilus, which I think they originally had one that was like boxed and sealed, whereas this one is has been worn. Like there's there's scratches on the bezel. It's it's very clearly been possibly an everyday watch for someone, and that one won't fetch as much as the double sealed one that was probably close to a hundred thousand. Um, but this one's been used and it looks so much better. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Mm. I agree. I think more than this one of the, I think a million years ago, Tim, you and I were on a Zoom call and it was we, this is one of the conversations that sparked off the potential for this podcast as to the fact that tool watches now are not being used for their intended original purpose. I think, Mm -hmm. Anthony, you alluded to earlier that in the 1960s, somebody who wore a Rolex Submariner was probably a diver. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, somebody sitting in a trendy wine bar in Dubai with a Rolex Submariner on probably now isn't a diver. And that watch is pristine. And it is, it is really refreshing when you do see a watch that has been hammered, that has had a life. What do you think, Tim, of, um, you know, I was looking at some uh, just over the weekend, actually, um, in the um, excellent shop in London, the Vintage Rolex Company is a great place to go and have a look at. I was looking mm. at some of the vintage subs with the faded bezels, and the, the, there is a trend and a desire for for watches which have a sort of like a very, very distinct pattern, which, you know, um, the watches look gorgeous. I do love the, the faded bezel, but, you know, there's, there's no way you'd, if you owned one, you would actually contemplate taking it diving, is there? It is all, it is all aesthetic. It, I think a lot of it is aesthetic, yeah. There, there are some people out there who take their vintage watches to service places and get them fully waterproofed again. Uh, so there, there will be some people out there who are diving with, with vintage Submariners and stuff. Um, probably braver than I would be, I, especially with the price of some of them. Um, mm. I think you've got to have deep pockets already to, to go through that phase and feel comfortable that if something goes wrong it'll still be all right. Um, but yeah, most of the time it is just an aesthetic and that's where, I mentioned it earlier, but that's where brands like Tudor are doing, why they're doing really well because they look like an original Tudor Samarina or Rolex Samarina from back in the day, but you can actually use it every day or swimming or in water or whatever you want to do, it, it will survive it. Um, so yeah, the aesthetic is, it's been around for a few years now, the whole like reissue slash vintage scene um it's big not just in watches it, it's kind of everywhere at the moment in culture but yeah certainly in, in watches pe- people just are, are still all over it actually it, you'd have thought by now it's maybe starting to die off but i don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon here, here we go now um honest answer tim needed honest answer your your sub if you're going for a shower or for a swim will you wear it or do you take it off uh if i was going for a shower i'd take it off i don't really see the point in wearing it when I'm having a shower, I'm not really in there long, and the shower gets pretty hot. So, you know, it, it is over 10 years old. Like seals probably aren't as good as as what they could be. So, any ex- unnecessary exposure to steam and stuff could cause some issues there. Uh, I have swam with it. I, I wouldn't have any issues swimming with it. Uh, when I first got it, I did. I wore it in the pool, but I didn't in the sea. <laughs> um, 
psychological thing of if it came off my wrist somehow and it drops 30 feet i'm not getting it but in a pool it does, i could so i see but i did eventually wear it in the sea. so i have i have swam in it um i yeah i i'm mean, obviously i've got a different view on it because i'm kind of involved in the industry in the way i am but i always like testing that sort of stuff it's like well it, it wouldn't have been created and say and have all this history if it wouldn't wasn't able to survive i remember i did it with when i got one of the new iphones that was waterproof or meant to be waterproof or water sealed i was like okay well let's test it I, when i was on holiday i took my phone out to the sea and was filming video above and then just put it under the sea and just filmed it and it was still working fine so yeah i i think i think just do it you've got you've got See, on trust an your level right. i know you're right i just can't bring myself to do it i just can't really yeah yeah i don't know what it is <sighs> so you you I, wouldn't wear your sub swimming you uh, if you went to a pool no, you take it off i'd force myself uh, it would come naturally to take it off and, and and then i'd have this probably you know i know myself i'd have this internal conflict saying you know oh, just, just wear it just wear it so, no but what if you know what if I mean, but there almost certainly wouldn't be a scenario. One of my most treasured yeah. photos is me standing in the empty quarter in the UAE in 55 degrees C in the middle of the desert with nothing but desert for so many miles around. And I took a photo of my Rolex Explorer 2 and it's covered in sand where it's all stuck to my skin, the sand. And I think that is what that watch should be used for. Mm. Yeah. You see now that's that's weird you see sand i wouldn't have a problem with but um it's no look look i, I need to get over this so i'm i'm just gonna go <laughs> with the sun on tonight or something like that and then obviously blame you and it breaks my my advice would be check the crown and then check it check it again before you go yeah. water you that see, would then, only be my advice then then everything else would be fine you're, you're absolutely right but you see part of me thinks well why put myself through that whole stress you know because like in the end i go <laughs> swimming that often and you know as you say what's the point in wearing your watch when you have a show it's, it's just easy to take it off isn't it um which well, is, I, I agree with in the, the heat and the, i think that is actually a, one of the things we're not supposed to do isn't it baths and showers um, i don't see the point in that i don't know why people well i, I have read somewhere the extreme heat of a bath or a shower is not recommended for mm. waterproof watches I'm yeah, sure I've actually absolutely. read that somewhere, authoritatively somewhere. I've done that with a G-Shock after a workout, oh, and I've gone straight yeah. into a shower, and I'm like, I'm leaving it on because it, it yeah. can, and it's sweaty, and I need to clean it. Oh, but... you've raised a whole can of worms with the G word. Oh, yeah, sorry. The, yeah, that word is. I shouldn't have said, should I? No, 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 we've gone on to that. But what, what I wanted to touch on there, if I may, just briefly, because I, I value your opinions on this, is that uh, last week Tim and I were swapping photographs of... Uh, 1980s National Geographic Rolex adverts. Oh, wonderful. And they are superb. I've got two printed off on my wall here. One from the Bohiba Sands in Oman, because uh, my wife and I used to live there. And one in the Arctic for a Rolex. And I just, the, these, uh, when I was very young, these I used to open up National Geographic every week because my, 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 my father used to get it. And I'd look at the Rolex advert in the inside front cover and it just made me want to buy one so badly they each had an amazing story attached to it, amazing photographs and they always end with the same line well he can rely on his rolex and it just completely swung me over to the adventurousness of the brand <clears throat> have you noticed that, now though that well, that's type like of ad all and um, all because the lady loves milk tray that's a brilliant line i like it <laughs> <laughs> have you noticed now that advertise the companies are not advertising that way now so they're obviously not Actually, trying to 
push that message anymore. You look at current Rolex advertising, for example, whereas Omega, for example, stay true to the Moonwatch. Tim was right. They milk that for everything they can get. But if you look at adverts now for the some of the Rolex tool watches, mm. as opposed to the bulk of them, which are dress watches, they don't really push the adventurous angle now. And I wonder why. I, well, I, I think it's because I, we I mean, live in a, in a woke culture where macho adventurers are frowned upon now, Richard. I, th- I think it is a bit of that, to be fair. Oh, and to be honest, Rolex that was very is a... deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you went straight for it. I think there's a bit of that. And also Rolex are such a different brand now than what they used to be. And most of their advertising is kind of linked to uh, exa- insanely performing professionals like sportsmen and stuff. Um, so you either kind of have that route of Federer putting his watch on before he lifts the Wimbledon Cup. Um or you just have the watch looking pretty and people will buy it. I think people know the history now. Um, it's been around forever. It's almost one of those brands you're just born and knowing the name and how to pronounce it. Um, so I, I just don't think they need to do that as much anymore, really. They, they occasionally still have some campaigns where there'll be people going to Antarctica or whatever and they're wearing it, but it's not as much of a of a feature for Rolex, it, it, it's more like the expedition or whatever they're doing, that like um, conservation or whatever. Mm. Rolex will kind of pay for the whole thing and kind of uh, provide the whole trip and kind of have sponsorship that way rather than buy our watch because they don't need to tell people to buy Rolexes. They'll they'll do that anyway. Yeah, and I think it really goes back as well to what we were discussing earlier, which is it's a good an acknowledgement of the fact that the role of tool watches has changed. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's a little bit silly to suggest to people, you know, put on um, a Smiths or an Explorer and go and climb Everest because the reality is not that many people are going to. Um, mm. So, you know, you have that link and the same. I mean, we've not really even got into the whole history of motorsport watches and racing watches. But, you know, the fact is that not many people are actually going to become racing drivers. So um, I think there's a sort of like awareness really that um, these watches are, are tributes to what came before, mm. rather than a passport to the lifestyle that they represent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, we were talking earlier on, um, and there's, here's an interesting one that we mentioned earlier in sports. The um, Maybe you'd like to take us through this one, Tim. The JLC Reverso, because of course that's a that's a tool watch for polo players, basically, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm not completely sold on the origins of this, and I think a lot of people question it as well but supposedly the jrc reverso was introduced to have obviously the reversing dial so that when people were playing polo they could keep their watch on flip it over so only the steel showing and the watch wouldn't be damaged and the crystal would be safe um i'm not sure on the truth of the origins behind that i think jlc run with it and they've they've used it before um yeah, I've, I'm not sure whether to believe it or not, but it's it's a nice little story and they probably sell a lot of watches because of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could argue it, it it is to watch if that's the truth. It would your watch would be more protected if you had only steel showing. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. <laughs> I, th- I think that's a good one. And of course, the other great genre of tool watch, which I love, are, of course, the world timer watches. Um mm. Um, sort of like tool watches for travellers, knowing the time in pretty much any time zone. And that's sort of um, uh, gone against the grain a little bit, because as more people with the advent of the jet age and uh, the possibility to travel, that's something that I think more people become have become interested in. And we've seen almost a sort of revival 
of world timers in recent years with more and more companies producing them mm. i think that i'm quite i'm quite surprised actually that if you because you, you don't have a world timer do you anthony and i know at the moment obviously travel has been a bit restricted but normally you, you do travel quite a lot i'm quite surprised i, I would like a world timer um i've seen a, i've seen a few i like actually um there was a nice um a nice christopher ward not so long ago which uh, okay yeah i, I remember that one my direction yeah but that the one with the yellow one on the yellow yellow uh, bezel one. yeah 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 we i believe i reviewed that one that's a nice watch yep yep oh. really nice. so i do want to get myself a, a world timer Mm. Or and, you just you just you sell know, everything you know, and just get a patek. Well, there is that. But um, <laughs> why why sell everything and get one watch when you can have lots? That's that is a podcast in itself, oh, and dear. I have views on that, and I think a lot of people would as well. So that could be quite a cool one, especially because a lot of people listening will own fifty plus watches, and there'll also be the other camp who own three and completely adore them. So, yeah, that's you've opened a can of worms there. Yeah. <laughs> what are you planning to do to him? Sell everything and buy a Cartier? You've got uh, Cartier, of course. So you I've got the, the little tank, yeah. I'm still I'm hunting another Cartier at the moment and think if I could get that, I'd probably get rid of the tank. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, to briefly touch on it, I would be tempted to get rid of most and just have one or two. I, I don't really collect that much anyway. So I'm certainly more the way of have less watches that mean something or mean more to me um, and maybe are worth a little bit more. Um, just because of the craftsmanship you get with it, uh, rather than having 50 and you only really wear 20 a month or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's a huge, a huge topic. Another it's... controversial topic that we will broach later, no doubt. Have you done yeah, with one. more than one watch? Uh, personally, I, I confess I do. Yeah, yeah, I think I've travelled with no, no more than like a handful. Well, I generally feel that rather handy little watch roll that is on for sale on a website mm-hmm. yeah they're, they're they're very useful they're the ones i i use all the time definitely yeah and generally that means you have to take five with you <laughs> or you take four and put loads of straps in which i've done before yeah or i take one and four natos yeah i've done that all that yeah there's plenty of ways of using it <laughs> i'm heading off on a two-week trip tomorrow actually and i think um because it's on my wrist now I think it's the Ray Mears is going to have to come with me. Fine choice. Uh, yeah. It'll be a great, great traveling companion. Mm. It's superb. Although I do like a dual time. I think that's a really nice thing. I do indeed. Absolutely. I think, I think it's lovely. I used to spend an awful lot of time in a different country to the family. And mm. uh, the red hand on my Explorer 2 was always set to home time. Mm. And it was more than just a, a pointer to to GMT. It was a little pointer to home. And I would look at it, and even though it was midnight and I was doing something ridiculous in some far-flung country, I would look at it and think, oh, it's four o'clock. Kids are coming out of school now. And I, I do like a dual time. And now with we have family living overseas at the moment, and my dual time is permanently set to their country now. Well, obviously, my mm. watch is on UK time, and I, I find that quite a reassuring feature. Yeah, it kind of makes the world, brings the war, world closer, doesn't it? And yes. it, it's only a split second when you look at it, but it does instantly put you in their shoes, like like you did, thinking the kids are coming out of school and stuff. Yeah. And it kind of brings you all closer. Yeah, I can definitely see the appeal of that. 
And I that's something like I wouldn't it. want to be without. Even on my G-Shocks, where there's a call with a dual time zone, it's always set to a time zone where I either have a very close friend, for example, who lives in Brisbane, or it's set to where um, the kids are in, in Hong Kong. Mm. Nice. I do like that myself. Um, the only thing I sometimes end up wondering is that I see, oh, it's four o'clock at home. Now, does that mean 4 a.m. or 4 p.m.? Nah. I have fallen foul. Yeah. I'll make phone calls thinking, yeah. oh, 4 p.m. is a nice time to phone. Turns out 4 a.m. isn't. <laughs> And on that momentous bombshell, I think that's where we can end it for this week. Many, many thanks to Tim and to Richard. And we shall be back next time to talk more on the Ultimate Tool Watch podcast. Join us for part two. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Time to Unwind podcast. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. So please leave your ratings of the show through your podcast app. And be sure to reach out on social media at WatchGecko with your thoughts. Adding a rating and a comment really does help the podcast, so we'd be grateful for your support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.